0: Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I'm Brandon Laws, your host. Today's episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Gleb Sipersky. He's the author of several books, including the one we discussed today Never Go With Your Gut How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Got a chance to read this, and it's incredibly smart. It covers everything you need to know about cognitive biases. We didn't cover everything that he describes in the book because I think he outlined like 50 of them that we could experience at any given time. I think what you need to know is that, you know, as we go through and make business decisions, whether you're at the lowest level to the highest level, oftentimes because we get so confident in our decision making and what we know, that we tend to just go with our gut feeling, which Dr. Sapirsky would state that it's an emotional decision at that point. There's nothing scientific about it. So anyways, we cover so much of that and more, and you're going to enjoy this episode. I know I did. I really enjoyed reading the book, and I think it should be required reading for managers and leaders. So if you're looking for a great read, pick up this book because there's so much science behind it, and Dr. Sipirsky could have easily just gone through definitions and some minor examples of these cognitive biases that we would experience, but... He goes way further. And there's so much storytelling involved that I think you would relate to in a lot of cases. So it makes it easier to understand. So you're gonna really love the interview for one, but go grab the book and it'll be a page turner for sure. Enjoy the episode. Please go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review and a written review. would be amazing. And connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, all those places. So talk to you next week. Gleb, thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be on. You wrote a book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, Avoid Terrible Advice, Cognitive Biases, and Poor Decisions. I got to say, this book is phenomenal. I believe that all leaders, existing leaders, new leaders should read this book. There's so much information in here that might deter them from going with their gut in a lot of really key business decisions. So I want to commend you on that. I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much, Brandon. I really appreciate that. That means a lot. So you mentioned that you get sad, frustrated, and angered when you see profitable companies make decisions based on gut instincts. Why do you get irritated by that? Well, because of all the
1: suffering that's caused by that. You know, I grew up around the dot-com boom. So I was born in 1981. I was 18 in 1999 when the tech leaders were partying like it's 1999. For those who (laughs) remember that (laughs) Prince song, maybe that ages me. There were companies like Webvan, Boo.com, Pets.com. They were really booming. The leaders were in the front pages of the Wall Street Journal for all the right reasons as the titans of industry. Now, in just a couple of years later, when I was 21, 2002, there was the dot-com bust when these <laughs> leaders were in the Wall Street Journal for, for all the wrong reasons. so People lost their life savings. I mean, lots of smart investors, supposedly smart investors lost billions of dollars, but ordinary folks lost you know, their homes, their savings. There was someone I know actually who had a pretty serious suicide attempt as a result of that. So that was pretty bad. That was a hard time. And so I saw the kind of suffering that's caused by business leaders making really bad decisions. I mean, if you actually look at the business model of Webvan, it's atrocious. Well, we can talk about that later. Now, that was inadvertently bad decision-making. So that's really important to understand. It was gut decision-making, not maliciously bad. But there were people who went with their gut who were maliciously bad decision makers at that time. Namely, the leaders of Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco, and other companies that used fraudulent accounting methods to hide their losses. That was maliciously bad decision making, and was bad for them too. It wasn't only simply bad for everyone else. I mean, Enron collapsed. All the people who put their money into Enron lost a great deal of money, especially employees to Enron who lost their life savings in the retirement fund. So that was certainly that. But it wasn't only that. There was These people, the leaders of Enron, Bernie Ebers, they went to jail. They were on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal in handcuffs in a year or two because they couldn't hide the losses for more than a year or two. And they lost so much more than they gained. They gained like a year of bonuses, right? But they lost a great deal of additional salary and they went to jail for many, many years. They lost their freedom. It was a rational decision-making at the extreme when they went with their gut and made terrible decisions. So that really impacted me as I was growing up. And that was one of the causes that really pushed me to study decision-making and how and why we make such atrociously bad decisions. Why business leaders, I mean, right now, Boeing's in the news, right? We can Mm -hmm. talk about that. Made atrociously bad decisions that caused them to suffer from disasters. And so I went into neuroscience and I became a neuroscientist, a cognitive neuroscientist and the behavioral economist, studying how our brains cause us to make certain decisions in financial settings. I've been in academia for 15 years. At the same time, I was doing consulting, coaching, training on the side for business leaders for 20 years or so, and I combine that all in the book that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters.
0: Throughout the book, there's countless stories of businesses, business leaders that are going on gut instincts, making terrible decisions. Early on in the book, you illustrated the point that in a lot of ways, sports have jumped ahead of business in terms of recognizing the value of avoiding those gut reactions. I think of like the Oakland A's and the whole Mm Moneyball thing. I read that book and the movie was great too. It was interesting because they use statistics and facts to make decisions. So talk about that and why sports, you know, why did they jump ahead?
1: You know, I have no idea why sports jumped ahead. I mean, I have certainly some suspicions. First of all, sports is More, in some ways, it's easier to measure the outcomes of sports if you have a strategic plan for a business, right? Then you don't know whether you're going right or whether you're going wrong for many, many years. Right now, we are discovering that GE made some terrible, terrible decisions at the beginning of this millennium of 2000 when they chose not to invest into green energy and invest instead double down on coal. And right now, they really missed the boat and their finances are greatly suffering because of that. So that was really bad strategy. But we're only seeing that now, and you see the GE stock plummeting partially because of that. It's very hard to measure these things, whereas in the movie Moneyball, the Auckland Athletics baseball team, you can much more carefully and effectively measure what the individual players are doing. You can measure all of their movements, what they can do, what they don't do. And so it's much harder to measure workers, not simply leaders. We're talking about strategic plan. But how do you measure the decisions of a manager for a you know, mid-level manager, her decisions to invest resources in one area, not to invest resources in another area? Very hard to measure the immediate consequences of those decisions and how good that person is. So I think that's kind of one area why sports has really moved ahead of business. I think another area is this charisma of going with your gut in business that's not nearly as much present in sports. This idea, this charisma of the mysterious, brilliant business leader, you know, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the Henry Ford, this titan of industry, who might in a couple of years be the loser of industry, Mm -hmm. as the dot-com boom and bust proved. But there's the charisma, and so many business leaders sort of blindly follow this mythology. They really buy into the narrative. They buy into the story of these great leaders. You know, that's why you have so many books written about them. They sell so well, but those books don't really... (laughs) You know, the fact that so many people, I mean, we still have about half of all startups failing within the first five years and two thirds failing within the first 10 years and about three quarters within the first 15 years. That shows that, you know, just reading a book about Bill Gates is not going to cause you to start the
0: next Microsoft. (laughs) It is so true. (laughs) What is it about the gut instincts that make us internally trust it? It's simply
1: the fact that it feels comfortable. We like to feel comfortable. If we feel comfortable about something, which is the same feeling you have when something feels right, when something feels good, you intuitively want to do the thing that feels right and feels good. And that all stems from where gut instinct comes from. It comes from the Savannah environment, when we're in small tribes of hunters and gatherers of 15 people to 150 people. And that's what our gut reactions are adapted for. So for example, one aspect of that is the fight or flight response, when we had to jump at 100 shadows in order to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. And right now, we'd have many less saber-toothed tigers, but we still react to constructive critical feedback as though it's a saber-toothed tiger. We reacted outside of its actual proportion, you know. So that's a big, big problem for us. We have poor reactions. It doesn't only apply to business. I mean, let's talk about the physical area. In the Savannah environment, when we came across a source of sugar, we had to eat as much of it as possible in order to survive. We're the descendants of those who ate all the sugar and jumped at all the shadows because, you know, we survived, right? Our, our ancestors survived. Right now, we still have that same impulse. It feels very good and very right to eat a box of dozen donuts. We are pulled to do it. When we start eating one, we eat the next and so on until there's just crumbs left at the bottom of the Dunkin' Donuts box, right? I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tempting thing. Hopefully, a lot of folks have now learned that, well, it's bad for your health <laughs> to eat a dozen donuts. You know, one's okay, maybe two Don't stop at the third one. You don't want to eat more than two donuts. But unfortunately, people have developed more physical fitness because they have that. But they haven't developed mental fitness. They still go with their gut on business decisions and all sorts of other decisions when they really shouldn't, when they should apply the same tactic of controlling themselves and making the same wise decision
0: that they apply to eating a box of dozen donuts. You describe how our autopilot systems and our brain operate on a fight or flight response. And, and you were talking a little bit ago about the saber tooth tigers. And I think the fight or flight response is great for life and death situations for surviving, right? But is it mm-hmm. a fit for modern life? Where does that come into play where it actually is helpful? Or is it just most of the time not helpful at all?
1: Oh, it's certainly helpful when you have a bus hurtling at you. <laughs> you want to make sure to not, you know, stop and think about getting out of the way of a bus or, you know, if you have a baseball flying at your head, since we're talking about baseball, but you certainly want to stop and think about the fight or flight response when your boss, let's go again to the constructive critical feedback, when the- your boss is giving you constructive critical feedback. You don't want to have the defensive response of shutting down and ignoring your boss, you know, talk to the hand, right? Don't want to do that. And you don't want to shout back saying, you know, you're wrong. I'm awesome. This is great. I don't know what you're talking about with this constructive critical feedback. It's an intuitive thing to do. You know, some of us are more likely to shut down. Some of us are more likely to fight back. But the intuitive thing to do when you're getting constructive critical feedback is not to actually listen to it and incorporate it into your performance and do better going forward, even though that's what you should do in order to succeed and survive. So that's one example. Another example of the fight or flight response is when you're making plans. When you're making plans, it feels very intuitive for us to go forward and feel as though everything will go according to plan and we don't need to worry about any sorts of problems. Now, when things don't go according to plan, inevitably so, we have the fight or flight response and we react either very quickly, defensively or aggressively. Whereas what we should do is stop back, analyze the problem, figure out what is the right situation here, process our emotions. I mean, 80 to 90% of our decision-making comes from emotions. And when we don't realize how our emotions impel us to deal with problems in very problematic ways that really harm us, then we are going to get uh, kind of up the pickle without a paddle. So we don't want to do that. But that's what so many people tend to do in fight or flight situations when
0: unexpected problems come up. I will 100% admit that I have made decisions based on gut instinct. I will say that the opposite is also true. Sometimes I will collect so much information or feel like I need all these inputs and data before I can make a decision. And sometimes, like I don't know, you can get paralyzed mm-hmm. by it in a way. So we're talking about gut instinct for the most part, but is the opposite end of the spectrum a good idea? Like where you collect well, what happens, so much information? <laughs> what happens when you're collecting information
1: is not, about gut or not, what's happening there when you're gathering too much information, you're still coming from an emotional place. And the emotional place is fear. What is happening in reality when you're collecting too much information is the flight response. You're fleeing from the responsibility of decision-making and you're choosing to ignore the decision and you're just trying to gather more and more information. So what you need to do is realize that's a cognitive bias. Just We're talking about cognitive biases here, all the dangerous judgment that our brain tends to make because of how our brain is wired, because of our evolutionary heritage, because of the various morphological structures of our brain, which we can get into. But anyway, so the problem is that when you are gathering too much information, you're still in an emotional place, and you need to step back from that and say, "Hey, how much information do I actually need to gather for this decision?" You know, when you're deciding where to go for lunch with your friend, perhaps you don't need to read a hundred reviews of lunch places when you're deciding that. When you are actually deciding to make a key hire, you know, let's say you're deciding to step back from the role of a CEO for your company and become more top strategy level and hire a COO who takes care of everyday operations, you want to spend a great deal of time evaluating various people and talking to them. You want to have five candidates at least who you're very happy with and so that you're really struggling to make the choice and you need to gather a lot of information because this decision will be fundamentally important for the future of your company when you're making that decision. And whatever other decision, let's say you're in a different situation, let's say you're deciding to switch from one company to another, and you're really struggling, you're not sure whether it'll be a good decision or not, you want to gather a lot of information on that. So decisions that are fundamentally important for your career, decisions that are fundamentally important for your company, you want to take a lot of time and generate many viable options before you actually make a decision. And of course there's a lot of things that fall in the middle. So you want to decide before you actually start gathering a great deal of information, how much information you need for this decision based on how important
0: it is. You mentioned cognitive biases and you spend a great deal of the book talking about the different types whether or not they're helpful and what it is. Maybe describe some of the cognitive biases we have and are they helpful? So one of the cognitive biases I already mentioned,
1: the planning fallacy, where we tend to think that things will go according to plan. You've probably heard the phrase that failing to plan is planning to fail which the idea behind that phrase is that you should make plans, plans are great. Unfortunately, that phrase is quite misleading because when we as human beings tend to make plans, we think that our plans will go according to plan. We think that things will go great because we feel that we are good, we ourselves are good, our ideas are good, our plans are good, and therefore everything will be good. That's a bad way to go forward. It's not true. And unfortunately, a lot of people get stuck in a situation where they invest their resources in accordance with their plan. And then expected problems come up and they don't have any resources to deal with those problems. So a much more effective strategy to deal with a planning fallacy is to have the mindset that failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. So that you want to figure out what kind of problems might come up with this plan. Try to address these problems in advance. Try to figure it out. Try to address problems in advance and leave aside some resources for unknown unknowns because Some things you just won't be able to predict, and you need to have some spare resources of time, energy, bandwidth, money to deal with them. So that's an example of a specific cognitive bias, the planning fallacy, and ways that you would deal with that cognitive bias. And my book talks about 29 more of these cognitive biases. There are over 100 cognitive biases altogether. You can go and check out the list of cognitive biases in Wikipedia, where it talks about the research behind them and so on. My book focuses on the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases for business situations for business leaders, professionals, for your career, finances, investment, and how you can address them effectively going forward, such as how you address the planning fallacy. Planning fallacy is one example. Another example that's particularly problematic for me is called the optimism bias. And it's problematic in terms of I am risk blind. I feel things will go well. I'm risk blind. I have to exaggerate expectations about other people, my projects, and so on. So that caused me a lot of problems because, you know, I think the grass is green on the other side of the hill, whereas it's too often yellow. And that is quite damaging and risky for me. And unfortunately, this is a tendency that many other entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, I run a six-people company called Disaster Avoidance Experts that provides consulting, coaching, and training. A lot of people who are entrepreneurs who are in leadership positions, CEOs, they tend to be very optimistic as well because that's how you get to the top. People like optimistic people, and leaders who are charismatic, optimistic, they tend to get ahead when they present themselves as optimistic. Unfortunately, they tend to make a lot of mistakes when they get to the top of a company, which kind of really hurts them and hurts the company. So you need to know how to control your optimism. And how optimistic you are, you need to calibrate your optimism against the reality of a situation. And you need to get a pessimistic friend by whom you can run your brilliant ideas. You know, I have 20 ideas before breakfast and I feel they're all brilliant. But when I get them to my pessimistic peer, who is much more risk averse and sees a lot of problems and everything, they say, you know, hey, maybe these three ideas can be worthwhile. You know, everything is half baked potatoes. These potatoes are worth finishing baking. So let's work on them and improve them going forward. That's the strength of pessimists. They're terrible at generating ideas, not their strength, because they inevitably see the flaws of each idea and they exaggerate the flaws of each idea. But they're really good at judging, at evaluating ideas that are presented to them, and they can spot, hey, these ideas have the least flaws. It's plausible to actually fix these flaws. So they're really good at evaluating and improving. So optimists and pessimists can work really well together when you figure out both of these cognitive biases. But hey, I suffer from the optimist bias, I suffer from the pessimist bias. Let's play together well, as opposed to what I so often see in teams Whereas optimists are just generating ideas, pessimists are shooting them down, and they're just fighting a lot without actually getting anything done, which is terrible for teamwork and is one of these dangerous judgment errors, decision-making processes that comes from our gut.
0: Let's play out a common scenario that I think happens in the workplace quite a bit. I think the audience will relate to it. So let's say that during a meeting, my boss was really curt with me. My cognitive bias would say she's upset with me, maybe based on preconceived notions or historical information that's within my gut feeling. What should I do in that situation? What's my brain telling me? So what you should do in that situation is figure out whether she's
1: hurt because she actually is upset with you, or maybe she's in a bad mood, you know, maybe something bad happened to her at work or in life, you know, maybe she just had a bad burrito, you know. So, yeah, (laughs) who knows? Being curt. this is one of those problems where people think they're able to read people well and they're not. We're actually much less capable of reading others than we think we are. There was a really interesting study how trained police forces, B.I., C.A. and so on, they were taken and they were shown videos of a person who was either telling a lie or telling the truth. And they were asked to determine whether this person who you're supposed to be able to read well, right? You're the police, you're the detectives, you're awesome, right? you're supposed to be able to tell whether someone is lying or not. Well, their ability to tell whether someone is lying or not was actually at about a 52%. So that means it's just a bit better than flipping a coin, literally. (laughs) You can flip a coin and get that rate. 52% accuracy, terrible accuracy. I think the Secret Service was the only one that had more than essentially flipping a coin accuracy. So you are not going to be better at telling apart whether someone is lying or not than the FBI or say investigators. You're just not. So we are much less able to read other people than we think that we are. And we make too many assumptions and too many narratives and stories in our head about other people when we really shouldn't be making these narratives. So you want to step back and say, hey, she happens to be Kurt. What's going on here? Maybe I should approach her later and see what's going on. You know, hey, you know, I wasn't sure about how you answered the question. Can you clarify what's going on to see what her mood is? Or maybe she'll tell you, maybe she won't, and maybe she'll behave differently. So you want to evaluate over time, whether her mood changes, what and how she behaves towards you to understand
0: what's going on with her. How does empathy play a role in debiasing? So like you can even use that last example, like how could empathy help in avoiding those cognitive biases that we have? Well, the first thing to understand,
1: as they mentioned in the interview earlier, about 80 to 90% of our decisions are determined by our emotions. That means that if you want to understand why other people are doing something, don't think about what they're thinking. Think and evaluate and analyze what they're feeling. Empathy, of course, refers to understanding what other people are feeling. So that's the terminology here. So you want to understand what are they feeling. Try to figure it out. Try to get into their shoes. What would you feel in that situation? That's kind of the first level. But of course, you're not them. So you want to figure out how would somebody who is different than you feel in this situation. Think about all the stories in their head, all the triggers that they experience that are going to be different from you. And so if you're an optimist and they are pessimists, they're really going to react to a situation very differently than you would. So if you send them an email that's full of ambiguities, which optimists tend to do, and I say this as someone who's an inveterate optimist who sent my share of ambiguously worded emails, pessimists will tend to read them from a hostile perspective, from a negative perspective, and they will tend to get upset. So if you're trying to figure out how will a pessim, someone you know is pessimistic will read your email, try to imagine yourself like in the worst mood possible <laughs> reading this email. Try to figure out how can this email be revised in such a way that even in my worst mood, I will not mistreat it. I will not treat ambiguous sentences in a negative way instead of a positive way, which is how you meant. So you want to really try hard to address that. So that's an example of how you want to be thinking about other people, putting yourself in their shoes, and not simply thinking about how you would react in their shoes, but how they, in their personality, their personal demographics, whatever they happen to be, their cognitive abilities, how they would react in that situation in order to actually make good decisions about people, because this is what it's about, right? Making good decisions about them and how do you want to interact with them effectively. Interacting with other people effectively is the foundation of business success. And if you don't interact with them effectively, you can kiss your career goodbye.
0: There's a quote that I loved, and I want to get your response to it because I think a lot of people would react a little differently. So the quote says, it's much better to try to overshoot than to go for what feels comfortable. What do you mean by that?
1: I simply mean that when and there's a specific cognitive bias called the anchoring bias, where we tend to be very strongly anchored to what we first know, first hear about, first learn about. So in order to overcome the anchoring bias, we need to go far beyond our comfort zone. This is about comfort zone expansion. If you want to actually get to where you should go, where you should be, where you deserve to be, what your goal is, if you want to, let's say, try to exercise three days a week, what you should do is try to exercise every day. Then there's going to be a bunch of days where you know you feel too sick, or your you know your kids throw up all over everything, and you have to clean it up, and you don't have time to exercise, or your boss calls you for an emergency meeting, and you end the week figuring out that you know you only exercise three days a week. <laughs> it's like okay, so you exercised almost every day when you are trying to exercise every day. This is the same sort of principle, you know, when you're trying to make good decisions, you're going to find that it's going to be hard for you to make these good decisions. When you're trying to be, as an optimist, I can tell you this, when I try to be pessimistic, it's really hard for me to be pessimistic. So if I feel, okay, I'm appropriately pessimistic, I'm not. If I feel that way, if I feel that I'm appropriately pessimistic, so I need to go beyond the feeling. I need to be like I'm ludicrously pessimistic for me to actually approach reality. (laughs) So that is what I'm talking about here, that we tend to greatly underestimate how much we should actually change how much we should revise in order to achieve our goals,
0: whatever they happen to be. How does our current reality impact the predictions we make about the future? Well, in our current reality it tends to very
1: much anchor us. A very interesting situation. If you think back on your life, of you any listener, you'll find that you've changed much more than you anticipated. I know this is true for me, and I'm pretty certain it's true for the vast majority of the listeners out there. We tend to, when we think about the future from the current situation, we tend to think that our future will be in many ways like the current situation, like the past, but we are going to be so much more different. I can bet you, I'll be happy to bet a hundred bucks (laughs) that your future will be quite a bit more different and more complex in many ways than you think it is. Because there are so many things that we don't think about, so many things that we don't anticipate. People think they'll live in a house for 15 years and they move out after, you know, five years on average or something like that. There's a lot of studies showing us that people tend to greatly underestimate the amount of change in their life. And that, of course, causes people to make bad long-term decisions. So if you think you're going to live in a house for 20 years, then you're going to invest in really complex, you know, renovations of the house. And... When it turns out that your job, you know, suddenly makes you go from Miami to North Dakota, I don't know why, but for some reason, yeah, your house is going to be left behind in Miami, you know, full of whatever, crocodiles. And then you will be in a very chilly place and you will have spent a lot of money that you won't really be able to get back because, you know, your house price is not going to rise to the house renovations. And that happens across all fields. When businesses, for example, They tend to, you'll see this very often, when a business is doing well with a certain product, with a certain process, it will think that this product or this process will tend to keep doing well Mm -hmm. for much, much longer than it actually does. (laughs) So they don't invest into R&D, they don't invest into developing new processes, they don't invest into expanding into new markets nearly early enough, nearly as much as they should. They tend to just rest on their laurels and think that everything will be hunky-dory going forward.
0: There's another quote I love and the quote says, it's not like their owners set out to fail. It's simply that they didn't or didn't want to see the truth about the market's place, end quote. Why do some of the leaders at even the highest level ignore facts and go with their gut instinct? And can you recall any recent examples of this? Maybe some prominent brands that just Mm -hmm. really messed up.
1: Oh, sure, of course. I mean, we can talk about Boeing as a recent example, but let's talk about why that happens first. It happens because we're very uncomfortable with information that goes against our beliefs. So this is called the confirmation bias, where we look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. What we know now about Boeing is that if you've not been in a cave in Afghanistan for the last <laughs> a month, you've probably seen revelations of Boeing emails, internal Boeing emails, where they were pressuring regulators to not have airplane pilots train on simulators, which cost them more. And they were pressuring regulators to quickly approve the process. They were cutting corners. I mean, they said things like, you know, and they were internally very critical of the airplane. There were a number of people. There were quotes like, this airplane has been designed by monkeys or designed by clowns, supervised by a bunch of monkeys. You know, like really ludicrous quotes that show that a lot of people in Boeing knew this was a problem. They brought it to the attention of leadership. I mean, there was information showing that leaders knew that this was going on, that there was information that the plane was much less safe than they thought it was. But they ignored it. They just said, hey, you know, this can't be the case. These are just, you know, complainers and whiners. Everything is going to be safe because they felt that it's impossible for their new plane to be less safe than their mm-hmm. previous planes. And that's called the normalcy bias, where we think the future is going to be normal. The disasters will not happen. So the normalcy bias specifically causes us to underestimate the likelihood of future disasters. Just like people in 2007 thought that the housing market will keep going up. <laughs> it's exactly the same mentality behind housing stocks as behind the Boeing airplane of disaster when they crashed into disaster. They fell into the same trap because from the 1970s on, each new model that Boeing produced was safer, according to crash statistics and so on, than the previous model. So they just couldn't imagine that this new one would be less safe. They thought, well, but most will be just as safe. It will not be less safe and these people we can just ignore them. And so because of this mentality, they were completely ignoring all of this information that was going their way and that really harmed them. Obviously, right now, we could see that Boeing has lost over $20 billion. The CEO, Dennis Bielenberg, was fired. And of course, 346 people lost their lives.
0: Among the brilliant ideas in your book, there's this little nugget in there that I want you to illustrate for me. So... You mentioned in your keynote talks that you often get the question, how do you accept uncomfortable facts? And I cannot recall if you actually answered that question, but I want you to do it on the spot because I imagine that people are faced with uncomfortable facts all the time, but whether or not they do anything with it or just straight up ignore it, how do you actually answer that question? What you need to do is develop positive emotions of learning bad news. That's the only
1: way to counteract this discomfort. You need to grow to be comfortable and to like the discomfort of learning bad news. Because the bad news is true anyway. (laughs) The bad news about the MAX 737 was just as true before it crashed as after it crashed. That wouldn't have been nice if Boeing had learned about these bad news and grounded the airplane and stopped the problems before 346 people were killed and the CEO was fired and all these other problems happened. This is the case for everything. And wouldn't you rather know that your spouse is starting to be concerned about the state of your marriage before they hand you the divorce papers in two years after they decided they can't stand you anymore? (laughs) That would be much better if you learn about problems earlier. Because bad information, negative information, it enables you to learn about what's going on, what the situation of reality is and how you can actually improve it going forward. In the vast majority of cases, negative information helps you understand that, hey, now you can go forward. Even in some cases, you know, if the information tells you that you've lost this business opportunity, let's even say that, you know, so you can't fix it, completely lost, whatever, at least you can let it go and you can focus on other things. That's totally fine as well, right? That's a fine thing to do. Now, if you don't learn that and if you still are fixated on that business opportunity and you're trying to put your resources into getting a client, who it's impossible for you to win, that would be really bad for you for your ability to actually make a good bottom line decision. So what you need to do is develop appreciation for bad news. Think that bad news is actually good news because you're learning about the situation and you can improve it going forward. So the essence, the nutshell of what you want to do with bad news, with negative information is be able to develop positivity toward it, positive emotions toward it, to counteract the negative emotions that cause us to ignore it and sweep it under the rug.
0: You described how Jeff Bezos stated, I don't know if it was to his team or if it was in like a statement or something, but he said that Amazon is not too big to fail and predicts that one day that Amazon likely will fail. Is Mm -hmm. he looking at it the right way? I think he's definitely looking at it the right way. He's being
1: realistic about it. If you look at the history of companies, most companies that were in the Fortune 500 mm-hmm. in 1950 are not in Fortune 500 now. So I've been the more than 50 percent turnover. You can see that happening. You know, Sears was a great example of a company that was. You know, it was definitely ahead of Walmart and Target and all of these others. But it really failed to adapt to the digital age, and now we see that Target and Walmart are doing well and great and wonderfully, and Sears is bankrupt. What you want to focus on? is being able to adapt to the current situation and make
0: sure that you're going to be successful going forward. This has been such a great discussion, honestly, Gleb. The book that you have is just packed with ideas and we just touched the surface of it. So let's say somebody goes, grabs your book, reads it and is blown away like I am. How should they use the ideas in your book to you know, make life better at work? If they run a business, you know, make good business decisions, maybe at home as well? What do you think? Well, first of all, they should need to learn about how
1: to what cognitive biases are they most prone to themselves. I mentioned the optimism bias is one of my failures. It's not far from the only one, but it's one that's most, one of the biggest ones for me that is present in my life. So you need to know what's present for you. Which of the cognitive biases are you most prone to? And the book in chapter seven has a very clear assessment that enables you to go through it and see, hey, what's going on in your life? workplace in your company in your career and see how you and or other people on your team which cognitive biases are you most prone to. So for example, the first question asks, what is the percentage of projects that over the last year have gone over time and over budget. When I ask that to a group of CEOs to whom I give presentations, you know, I get answers ranging from, you know, 5% to as high as 98%. When you're at 5%, that's totally fine, it's not a big deal, you know, 10%, whatever When you're getting to 98%, that's a huge problem because, of course, you're misdirecting your resources. You think resources will go one way, they'll go another way, and you're really hurting your company going forward. Anything over 30% is going to be kind of a problem. Anything over 50% is going to be a serious issue. So you want to take that assessment and see where you are on each of these cognitive biases for yourself in the workplace and what you can do. And the, the assessment also has specific next steps that you can take to address each of these cognitive biases. And of course, the book does as well with giving extensive examples. So that's kind of the first step. You want to learn about them and see where they're impacting your life. And then there are decision-making techniques that are described in the book that specifically help you make both quick, brief decisions, everyday casual decisions, like when we talked about writing an email, an important email to a client, for example, to and another decision-making technique that it's much more in-depth, much more thorough, For serious decisions that you don't want to mess up, like making a key hire or switching jobs or you know launching a new product, so you want to use those techniques to inform your everyday decisions. The brief technique and major decisions, the more in-depth technique.
0: Glad this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you coming on the Transform Your Workplace podcast. Your book is Never Go with Your Gut: How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and avoid business disasters, avoid terrible advice, cognitive biases, and poor decisions. Where can people learn more about you, the book, or anything that you're up to that you want to point people to?
1: Well, first of all, the book is published by a great traditional business publisher called Career Press. so It's available in bookstores everywhere, and Barnes & Noble, University bookstores, Indie bookstores, and of course online and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, whatever you buy your books. You can check out my work on DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Again, DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. There's a lot of blogs, articles, videos, podcasts, a lot of manuals, assessments, decision aids, coaching, consulting, training services. You can check those out. I want to especially point out there's a free eight-video-based module course on DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com forward slash subscribe. Again, DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com forward slash subscribe. Eight- module video based module course on making the wisest decisions called the wise decision maker course essentially decision making one-on-one for folks who like it in digital format and i'm very active on linkedin so if there's anything you heard here that you have any questions about you want to chat with me or connect with me just go on linkedin dr gleb Tsipursky, g-l-e-b-t-s-i-p-u-r-s-k-y thanks for coming on gleb a lot of fun thanks so much brent been a pleasure